You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Land of Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. And we are here for another Habitat-focused podcast right here on Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network. We're going into week three of the QDMA Deer Module session. Matt, what's up this week? Deer movement. That sounds like a broad topic, and it is, but man, is it interesting. Because I think we talked about debunking myths Last week, revolving antlers and how antlers form and all the things that go into growing antlers every year. But I, I guarantee you there are more deer camp myths out there revolving around what and how deer move and how they don't move. You know, we ought to do a, we ought to do an entire podcast devoted to the myths of deer hunting. Oh, man. It might have to be a We're, series. It's, it's, it's going to be a series. Yeah, definitely uh, going to have to be a series on that one. But, yeah, I, I think... Uh, Man, there are a lot of myths, and and that was this this one right here is another one that's got a lot of myths involved oh with it. Oh my gosh, yeah, deer the, home range and movement patterns module so f- for the guys that haven't caught the last two podcasts that we have done right here on uh, on our habitat focused podcast. Now I'm saying that because if you don't know already, we're doing a hunting focused podcast that has been released on Saturdays. It's soon to change. Just look for it anytime you get the notification if you've subscribed or just check out the the uh, feed and find it somewhere uh, somewhere in the mix. It will be there right now, um, Tuesday, starting Tuesdays. Um, basically, you'll get both podcasts. We're just trying to find the right place for that um, hunting-focused podcast. That's right. So we're trying some new things. So if you don't see it this Saturday, don't worry. It's coming Tuesday along with this podcast. So the 10th, both will be released. There you have it. So, in regards to this little session that we're doing, week three, it's regarding the deer modules of deer all movement kinds of, and home ranges. All kinds of stuff. But to check it out, right now, you can use the qdma.com forward slash land, land and, legacy. and legacy to get a 20% discount on signing up for this uh, session module. Correct this whole series it's, and it's the whole all, series right not just this one yes all eight of them learn all kinds of stuff about deer and habitat and antlers I biology of deer the rut um deer habitat food plots anything all kinds and everything of great stuff and i gotta say the last two weeks were awesome but this was honestly they have gotten better as like they've always they were all good, but this one has is my favorite so far yes. that we've gone through. It was jam packed with information, jammed, slam jammed. Yes, and uh, it was very interesting. A lot of really really cool stuff. Of course, we can't give it all away, but we definitely take fifteen minutes of each podcast during this series to kind of break it down and talk about it a little bit. But this one had some very very interesting topics. And videos and all things deer movement patterns. And and too, too good that we're not just going to take 15 minutes. We're going to take a much longer time frame to discuss it. Again, because there's so many good topics and so many myths that can just be debunked with good hard science. And if it doesn't get out there, um, we're going to keep these myths floating around and, and honestly wasting people's time when it comes to whether they're doing habitat management or not, and how they're spending time in the deer woods. Um, you know, let's just not cut, or let's cut to the chase and just get past all this fluff. And, and um, I, I don't know, I just want to say like anecdotal hunting observations. Let's get to the hard science because for me, I can say personally, I've stuck with that, um, you know, all the GPS collared deer relying on that kind of information to make better hunting decisions. I mean, the way we've gone and approached different states that we don't know much about. Okay, well, what's the habitat like? Consider that. And then what is science telling us? When should we be hunting? How should we be hunting? 
and and that that helps out a bunch. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Weather baby, <laughs> you're a weather man. <laughs> yep, that's yep. the only job you can be wrong at. That's all we the time. Say that all the paid, time. Right? That's the job you can be wrong at two thirds of the time and still be a, and still get a a a, a pay raise. A, yeah, in December. Well, you ready to talk about some deer patterns and, yeah, and, and movement? Yeah, I'm all for it. So I think at first, what's important to discuss is is defining home range versus core area. That's that's myth number one, basically, or or confusion number one when it comes to lingo among deer hunters and understanding the differences. They're they're not an interchangeable term regarding home range and core area. Absolutely. How many and, times have you heard just talking? Uh, oh man, I, I'm in his home range. Yep. I'm well, I hope bedroom. so. I'm in his bedroom <laughs> down there in his home range. I I would hope so. Um. So basically, the home range can be defined as where a buck spends ninety to ninety five percent of the time during a calendar year. And that last part was was the big defining thing, the calendar year, because that's such a long time frame, and that covers such a wide area across many of the habitat. Um, you know, within the the whitetail's home range, I say home range, whitetail's distribution. Like, that's that's an entire year's time frame, ninety to ninety five percent of the time spent there in a home yeah. range, and they're gonna vary in size, and we'll share some of those. Um, ranges what they may look like across different areas but a core area is where they spend within that 99 95% of the time frame the home range within that home range they're spending over 50% of their time yeah and i think of to me i just think of uh, this is my city this is my home range and this is my neighborhood yes. and this is my core area exactly exactly in, in layman's terms you're just shrinking down how much more you you spend a, mo- a majority of your year, ninety five percent of your your year within your city, whether it's work, the park, wherever you're working out. Um, but over that time frame, the majority, over fifty percent of your time, is spent at home in your neighborhood doing whatever you do. Um, so again, core area is what we want to focus in, but we have to understand these terms and these definitions before we get into the rest of the podcast and share and use these terms. We have to understand what we're talking about so you can have a spatial awareness of, oh, okay, you know, that makes sense in a buck's home range, but maybe not applicable in a, in a core area. Yeah. Um, so for, for me, as we both were reading it, um, different things kind of stuck out. Uh, one of the, it, it got heated pretty quick, I guess, in the first little portion of the module. Um, but I'm going to read a little section of it and just kind of get an understanding of variances in home ranges and what they can be um, throughout different parts of the country. So studies in Louisiana, Maryland, Pennsylvania show adult buck home ranges average between 269 to 559 acres. These are much smaller than a square mile estimated to be 640 acres that is often discussed as a buck's home range a similar study in texas showed an average home range of 2271 acres obviously the vegetation type and amount of cover has a strong influence on home range size so that 640 acres the square mile everyone's heard that oh it's a, about a square mile but we obviously see in in louisiana maryland pennsylvania studies it's not that high and the ranges is between 270 to 560 acres yeah that's such a big range oh totally totally and then you throw in that texas study and you're like it really depends on the neighborhood it really depends on the city yeah neighborhood it's a bad (laughs) yes that was a bad choice of words (laughs) considering your analogy yeah but totally understand um they're what you're saying, but if that doesn't bring home or drive home the emphasis on the influence of habitat and cover and vegetation, nothing else will. We look across the country and see huge differences in the vegetation that grows, but it's distribution that make up overall habitat is going to strongly influence how deer use utilize it and how big their home ranges are so if you're a person adam in, in uh pennsylvania 
how do you interpret that information? What do you what do you say to that? Um, okay, a home range. What does that mean to you as a hunter? Uh, to me, I think of a, whenever I think of a home range, I think of. Let's just put this into perspective for me. Of okay, it's in his home range. I got him on camera here. Um, once every couple of months, he he passes through, and I get a picture of him. Okay, he's been there. That's in his home range. Um, but I don't get many pictures of him. I'm not in his core area. So I always look at it going, okay, home range is more like he's he's around the area, but he's not that active in it. Like everyone can probably imagine right now a deer that has shown up on camera. They're like, oh my gosh, look at him. I've never seen him before. Yeah. Or, or you might catch, you know, two or three pictures throughout a given year of that deer. What you could begin to think is, okay, my, this camera location is within his home range, but not his core area. He may show up infrequently, but you still kind of in the game. You feel like there's a chance, right? Yeah, and and I think maybe this isn't time, but maybe it is. Um, when you look at a home range, we'll get into it. I'll just save it. We'll get into it a little bit later. But when you look at a buck's home range, I always think of the deer that just shows up during the season um, and you get the one picture of him, and you say, holy cow, look at this guy, and then you never see him again. Yeah. And then he may show up during the winter, and you're like, man, where is he living at? Yeah. And, and he just taunts you, and you're just like, I, I don't know really where he's living. He's the head that's, scratcher. That's a, that's a deer that has a home range that overlaps a little bit, but you're not in his core area. Correct, correct. And and to me, if I hear, okay, I'm I'm within the Bucks core area, well, darn right, you better be, because those are such wide uh, and, and huge areas. Home range, you said. I, you said. See? There we it's go. so confusing. Home we, range. We can't even get it straight. <laughs> Here, we're trying to define it for you guys, and we're messing up. Um, so the, the are home range. I heard you earlier. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if, if you better be in a home range, and home ranges, and we'll, we'll get into this too, because this module covers it, um, but bucks aren't territorial. So these home ranges are going to overlap with other bucks' home ranges. So hopefully, wherever you find yourself hunting, you're within that home range of several deer. Um, mm-hmm. Now looking at core area, it says core area is the portion of a buck's home range where he spends 50% of his time. So while a buck may travel over several hundred or thousands of acres, he spends half of his time in a much smaller portion of it. The same studies in Louisiana, Maryland, and Pennsylvania showed a buck's core area were only 59 to 86 acres. Now I'm saying, hallelujah, I want to find that core area. And if you're a person out there who has ever doubted your influence and we're talking a landowner who may be under 100 acres, if, if you're that person, you don't think that you can have a large impact in a neighborhood, that study or these studies and that information about a Bucks Court area should be... I, I, What's something motivating, motivating, inspiring? There we go. I like that word. Inspiring to you to get out there and do some work. Yeah, and I think we'll get into it because this whole podcast, you know, in the last two weeks we've talked about the module and then we moved on to something else. But this this week we're going to kind of really stay around this same theme um, and take the information that we learned in the module and then use that in in the habitat side of it and go how can we how can we improve this and build upon this and that's what we're going to focus this this whole week's podcast on and i think of uh there's so many small properties probably more people hunting small properties than there are guys hunting 500 plus acre farms no doubt and it gets we watch too much outdoor television and say man it must be nice to own thousand acres and kill giant deer but then you look at it from the studies that we're talking and telling you about, and you go, you know what? I could be. I am in a good area, and if I take that information that you guys just told me about and I use it to my advantage, I can pull a lot of deer onto me. And even though I may be the smallest landowner in the neighborhood, I can be the one who owns the deer during that time of season. You might you might be small, but you are mighty. Honestly, in the habitat that, that you can your, offer. Is that your, your that's anthem? My, that's my, yeah, pump up. Yeah. yeah it's, <laughs> my, it's my cheer for everyone out there. Um, 
But it's so true, and, and we'll talk about another study here in a little bit that shows just how, or multiple studies that show just how influential a core area can be and the habitat that lies within a core area, how important it can be in holding deer, um, specifically bucks, and what we would classify as mature bucks um, or adult age class deer, and how important the habitat is in, in relation to that core area. So, if you're the person out there who's like, and how many times, Adam, do we hear this in a um, landowner's goals as we approach a property for, for a consulting trip? It's, you know, I just want a chance at, at one good mature deer every year. Like I, I want I want one like living here that I can routinely hunt and just feel like I got a good opportunity. It happens all the time. I mean, I would say almost 80%. Everyone, yeah, for it, sure. 80% of people say, I just want to have a good deer to hunt every season. How often, though, the other one of the most common ones is uh, being land consultants. We hear this one a lot. Is I, I don't know if I can afford you guys. I don't know if I really, you know, my land. I don't own very much land, so uh, I don't know if it's worth it. And that's the one where it's like, just because it's forty acres doesn't mean we can't help you. Just because it's 40 acres doesn't mean you can't do something to make it the very best 40 acres in your neighborhood. Exactly. And, and and that's one thing that there are landowners out there who've figured it out, and they don't own the 400, they own the right 40. I'd much rather pay taxes and do the work on 40 acres than the 200 or the 2,000 and still kill the good deer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and 40 acres... Um even if it is intensely managed, it's likely more uh, <laughs> feasible to manage all the acres than a 200-acre piece, obviously, and 2,000-acre piece. It is about, in some instances, location, but a lot about what you offer within that exact location. And and don't be, don't get scared away from, from a track that might not be of the acreage that you want. You might be looking for 200 acres, but sometimes the right 40 can be better. Consider it and keep it as an option if you are out there looking for land. Um, so again, hopefully that, again, this is 59 acres to 86 was the average core area for those for those deer in, the, in those states and studies. That's super, super encouraging. And like we said in the home ranges, core areas can also overlap. They don't have to occupy different core areas. So even saying, hey, I want at least one, if you do have the best habitat in the the area, it's likely, and and the age structures there, it's likely that you could have multiple, even within this 60, 80 acre property. 100%. Yep. I, uh, when it comes to you know, I just think of this small property. I feel like I get we get stuck on that, and it's such a like a negative negative thing to to own small land and just sit and dream of the of the big chunk of ground. But then when you look at it, if you hunt it correctly, it's it's way easier to manage because you don't have to manage the huge chunks. But if you manage it correctly and you have the best habitat, how often? I mean, let's just be honest. Habitat is almost never. It's it's never done. You never get to a point where you're like, "Yep, my habitat is 100% on a on a score of zero to 100. I'm there." Because if you stop, it's it starts to decline. It's a backslide. You got to continue to manage. And if you continue managing, and frankly, as you've caught on by now, habitat across the country isn't great, and and that especially for white-tailed deer, and so. Looking at deer, white-tailed deer habitat across the country, it's not very great. So it won't take you a lot of work to be the best farm in the neighborhood. Now, given there are other times out there, are certain neighborhoods where it's going to take a lot more work. But in general, you find an area, you look around, and you say, well, there's some good deer here, but the habitat's not very good for the deer. You can make some improvements to have the very best to where you increase your chances of holding the deer during hunting season much longer. Oh, no doubt. And that brings up a, a unique point of, of um, you know, comparing your properties to other properties in your neighborhood. And the value of then 
reaching out to those neighbors and see if they want to be a part of a, a co-op, a QDM co-op, where they too improve acres and realize that, okay, if if you're seeing this on your property, your smallish property, and you, your habitat is just in place, maybe we can increase exponentially the the opportunities for, for me. And, and honestly, the both of us. And that gives you the confidence and, and the knowledge understanding that, okay, this landowner's on board. When I pass this deer, I'm having a better chance. I, I have insurance that, okay, we're getting older age class deer. Um, so don't underestimate the power of, even if you have a smaller track, focusing very intensely on the, on the habitat, on the vegetation and reaching out to neighbors, branching out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is always strength in numbers. No, totally. Totally. And especially as far as landowners, if you can get your neighbors on board and you are all like-minded and okay, we want to shoot the the appropriate m- amount of antlered antlerless woo antlerless deer woo, woo. and we're focused on shooting deer of this caliber and you combine forces and you just build up your empire if you you, will. you build up your influence in the neighborhood influence on the deer herd and of course by default other people so you know that in your Neck of the woods, your co-op, if a deer is not of the age class of your liking, he has a better chance of surviving. And there, then you you're, you have a healthy population. You have the appropriate number of, uh, I guess, acres to where you can really hold deer and have a very successful um, co-op. I, I, to me, it's a no-brainer. It's, I, it really I think is. we're at the stage in 2018 to where... We should be over the days of not communicating with our neighbor. We nice. should be yes. over the days of hiding our trail camera pictures. We should be over the days of not texting our neighbor, not talking to him, not going over to their house and telling them and kind of communicating and seeing what they're seeing and and everything like that. We should be over that. We should be now trying to join hands and... Figuratively. <laughs> yes, and figure out... Um, exactly how we can improve the the habitat and improve the land for the benefit of ourselves and more importantly the wildlife. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, we've got texts, we've got emails, we've got phones we can call out are on our hip pockets all the time. Like, there's no reason why we shouldn't and couldn't communicate with them. And you're not going to get along with every neighbor, and not every neighbor is going to be on board with this. However, you will find some, especially if you're in an area with a lot of hunters. Most likely, they're going to be, they're going to find more neighbors that are in favor of this than opposed to it. Yeah, yeah. And And I think, you know, if you get a no, fine, cool. Move on to the next one. You probably got another neighbor you want to reach out to. And it's important to understand the neighbor and and how serious it is. When you look at my family farm, Matt, um, you've been here now four years or something like that. I don't have a lot of neighbors around me that are serious hunters. Mm-hmm. They hunt during gun season. That's about it. Um, and, I mean, they've shot some good deer in the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, but I still communicate with them just to find out what they're seeing and uh, what they've killed. And that's how we figured out that some of our hit list bucks haven't just gone to another part of their, uh, their not core area, but... Take an excursion during the rut and never come back. We know, we know what why. happened to him. The neighbor shot him. And that's all great. At least we know what happened. And we know the neighbor is most likely going to be buying tags and gear next year. Or, or just the fact that it was legally harvested. Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's the one that hurts. And I honestly, I think that it, here, here's what I, I think what it comes down to and boils down to is if we don't communicate with neighbors, we associate or, or we assume the bad. We assume the bad in our neighbors. We assume that they're getting shot on the road. We assume that the neighbor's baiting. We assume that he's harvesting all these young deer. But there are a lot of assumptions. And if we don't reach out and talk to them, we're not going to truly know the answer. I'm not I'm not saying you're going to get a truthful answer out of every single neighbor. That's just not realistic. But if you at least open up yourself and your property and open up that line of communication, you don't have to assume as much. When we assume, we all know what happens and we make those sometimes false 
accusations and, and, and spread that. And that's not good for a community. And let's, let's, let's just talk with honesty here. And, and early on in my hunting career, we created some, I don't want to say bad blood, but we created some friction in our neighborhood with the fact that we were really trying to focus on shooting mature deer. We kind of got irritated with neighbors who shot younger deer in our mind and created some just not bad blood, but a little bit of like, okay, yeah, you guys are kind of snobby. We don't get along real great. You, you're, you were a deer snob. We were a deer snob, a bow hunting snob, and that is a real thing. Um, it is definitely <laughs> and so it's like if you don't the classic if you don't shoot it with a bow then then uh it, it doesn't count yeah no um, not, not true <laughs> and uh, that that th- there's definitely something to the bow hunting snob um but I, we were kind of the bow hunting snobs where it was like uh deer season i, I or gun season i can't stand it everybody's gonna come out and just shoot a bunch of young deer and and there was this very much uh, irritation talking to our neighbors of, yeah, I shot that one, I shot that one, I shot that one. And it's just like, oh, my gosh, they've shot everything with a gun, and it's not even challenging. And you know what? At the end of the day, I'm just glad they got out there. But we created that, and now over time, we're trying to fix that and change that, uh, change that friction that we had and, and get it to where we're all on the same page and we all are happy and communicating and helping each other. And that's when we're actually building a hunting community and not creating a bunch of snobs and a bunch of bad blood. Um, and that's definitely something that over time we've had to fix to where now um, by being closer and being in more communication um, that we can help them or at least we can all get on the same page and understand habitat improvement and things we can do to help our land but help the neighborhood in general. You know what? Like we said earlier, there's just there's no excuses. You know, if, if you're summertime, you're thinking about deer season right now, you're preparing. Add to the list the to-do list of things, and that's reach out to neighbors, talk with them. I mean, just open up a little bit and see where it gets you. Um, if it gets a door shut in your face, then like I said earlier, there's another neighbor to probably go knock on and just talk with them, communicate. Um, I don't know. I, I, I just think it's it's important for us hunters and the, and the position that we're in as a society and hunting culture to do it. Whether, whether, the, whether the habitat improves or the deer, the age structure improves, we just need to do it. Yeah, for society in general. But how can something so wonderful, and that's hunting, be so competitive and create so many bad relationships i how is that possible but it happens yearly daily yeah um it's definitely something to where i don't know it's how often i mean even sports we cheer for different teams we pull for different players but at the end of the day we still are like yeah like i i'm a huge cardinals fan st louis cardinals fan but there and then you have the cubs our huge rival but it's not like i want them to stop being a sports fan because i don't agree with them but it's almost like as hunters i love chasing deer theoretically i'm just a person i'm not adam i'm just a person saying i love chasing deer but i wish my neighbors wouldn't hunt because they're shooting all those young deer it doesn't make sense and so i think uh definitely talking to our neighbors to improve habitat working together is is a must you know what we need to talk about what focal points focal points in the module and and you're looking at me like wait what are you you talking about because it was new to me too honestly like i had never heard this term i had associated this this place with a with a different term or or honestly not even termed it um and you'll know what i'm talking about in a second but focal points and i'm going to read you something and everyone would probably be like, oh, yeah, I, I've seen that during the rut, or I, I've seen that type of activity, and it just seems like that's just like the hub, or that's just the place to be. And what I'm talking about is a study out of Texas says, Texas identified an interesting movement pattern as their research bucks did not wander widely during peak rut. In fact, they only used 30% of their home ranges, and in most bucks had two or more focal points of activity within their ranges. Even more interesting, during peak rut, those focal points, 
were visited frequently, roughly every 20 to 28 hours, and focal points of several individual bucks overlapped, suggesting numerous bucks visited the exact same spot. Focal points. We might see them in nature as a community scrape or something definitive an intersection, a food plot, right, that is often visited at this time, obviously, bucks are seeking out does where does are spending a lot of time. Um, but there are, it could, again, it could be an intersection in heavily used trails or or a position in between two dominant bedding areas um, within within the landscape. And these focal points, if you can identify them through whether it's hunting observations or through trail camera images, you are setting yourself up for success honestly if you put in the time or you, you know you have the time to go and hunt during the rut and and they're there for a reason you know for the focal points it's it's likely a terrain deal it's likely a habitat or or vegetation to cover or it's likely um it, a food resource that is influencing these <laughs> focal points you're saying it's likely but you're all those things all, are all... It's likely a food plot. It's likely a mock scrape. It's likely. Well, I'm saying it's likely all those are likely influencing it. Oh, okay, gotcha. So yeah, now all those play a, a important role in identifying or or locating a focal point. Yeah. Yep. And a lot of, a lot of these studies are saying okay, there's multiple deer at these multiple bucks. And they have multiple ones, but they're frequent, frequently visiting these and revisiting them. So, how often do you hear the line? I had that camera over there, and I had four of my hitless bucks show up in one week. Boom. Focal point. Yep. Or, or, you know, that scrape. He comes back and he checks it. I don't know. Every other day. Yeah. He's there every other day. I'm hunting it. He runs that scrape line. Yeah. These are these are focal points that we need to identify um, and specifically key in. There's probably a time frame, obviously, um, peak rut, when we need to be hunting them more so than any others or saving them. I, I think I think of that often um, throughout October as sign is certainly increasing and you start to get um, bucks maybe showing up more during daylight hours. We want to go in and, and, and hunt these spots that we know are so good but it's not the right time to do so, and we often jump the gun or booger a spot, mess it up before we really need to be in there. I think that understanding um, or the patience level develops as a hunter. A hunter, yes, and understand not just a hunter on understanding a deer, but another advantage is understanding the land too, and yeah. how to and how to maneuver through your woodsmanship card like oh, we talked gosh. about woodsmanship darn right <laughs> we had a lot of interaction or a lot of comments about Ooh, that we did it was almost That's like fun. we brought a word out of the uh what is it whenever we talk about like language from years ago like yeah. the old like old like, english old english <laughs> language it's like we brought out a yeah. word that people had forgot about oh yeah woodsmanship I forgot about that. I, I don't I don't understand how that ever left us, but I honestly technology interfered and has interfered so much with just practical common sense woodsmanship in hunter today. I, I oh. it blows my mind. So hopefully these these studies that we're talking about is going to influence and impact and allow you to regain your woodsmanship if you lost it um, and become a better hunter this year. But just understanding the biology and the terrain and the landscape to make it all make sense and kill some deer this year. You know what, you know what woodsmanship does? What's that? Puts hair on your chest. That's it. You remember those Snickers commercials? I don't know if it was like the Super Bowl, but it, it was like uh, someone was doing something that was not manly and like they got caught. And then, like, quick, do something manly. And they just, like, rip their shirt open and rip out a big chunk of chest hair. No, I don't remember that. You don't remember that? I think of Duluth. Uh, um, oh, yeah. The, yeah. Uh, the jeans or whatever, whenever they say it's beaver-proof or whatever, it shows the beaver, like, bite the man in half. And then he puts yeah, on yeah. the Duluth one and it breaks its teeth and it goes... Rrr, rrr, rrr. <laughs> we need, like, a little cartoon. 
for yeah, getting your woodsmanship back. That's right. I don't know what it'll be yet. So if you got ideas, let us know. But um, wow, we went off on that little rabbit trail, didn't we? Oh, we did. We That's did. Okay. Totally. That's totally. okay. That that woodsmanship led us down a, a rabbit trail. I think you know this whole this whole module was so interesting because it just opened up. That's why we're doing the whole hour on it in a way, not giving you every single piece of information that was shared, but it definitely made us think and relate to stories that of of like certain deer that just show up on camera and you're like, "Oh man, that deer definitely just came out of nowhere. I w- I I was in his home range, but I wasn't in his core area." And that makes me think of the times and this is what's motivating and gets us out there day after day or week after week when we head to our farm head to the land to do some habitat work because you think like yeah you sometimes get stuck in a rut of going okay i'm gonna go do this i'm gonna go do that and you just hope for something the definition of insanity you just hope for something different to happen but when you look at improving habitat this is why we preach it week in week out of not focusing on just food plots and not focusing on just putting out a bait and or put filling up the feeders or f- putting out mineral. Focus more on the habitat because the habitat is what can really change your landscape for years down the road. When you look at a deer that just shows up on the farm and then he leaves and you say, ah, oh, doggone it. What motivates us to improve the habitat is you have this deer show up in the middle of hunt season and he stays. And you watch his core area, his home range, overlapped on your farm but you didn't have many pictures of him until he wandered on your farm and realized the habitat is in the shape that provides everything he needs to survive and then you watch his core area go and almost if you're looking at a map i think of the heat map on deer lab Mm -hmm. you look at i think it's red is where it's really intense and it's green where it's kind of his his area his his home range you watch that basically that red circle or heat intensity shift to where he's on your property. And it's because you've improved the habitat and provided everything he needs for him to survive. It's highly preferred and selected over his previous area. And and to me, it's it's a, okay if that you know doesn't make sense to you. If you're a business owner, it's like it's like a new customer. Like when you see him walk through the door and you're like, oh, I don't, I don't recognize you. I haven't seen you before. And they come in they're like, okay, yeah, this is a really nice store. I saw the storefront. It looked good. So I was like, you know what? I'll come in. I'll come in and I'll check out your products. And they're like, well, what's this product? You talk to them about it. They end up buying that product. They're like, you know what? This is a good quality product. I'm going to go back and I'm going to get some more. And they just come back, they're a frequent customer, they're your customer, and they're not going anywhere else but to your store to get this certain product. And they tell everyone else about this product in your store, and everyone comes there. How about you say, take it another route and say, restaurant. How many times do you stumble upon a restaurant and you say, holy cow, I can't believe I've missed this place. I've never been here, but once you get there, you're like, this is the best food I've ever ate. Yeah. And you start taking your wife there. And you start telling your buddies about it. Pretty soon you've turned that restaurant into like your hangout spot. You know what habitat is or the habitat that we're trying to create? Habitat that we're trying to create on a property from this is from an aesthetics point of view is that hole in the wall restaurant that you drive past and you're like, I didn't even know that place was open for business, but yet it's the best place in town to go and eat. It looks like crap. But it is fantastic. That's right. It might not be the cleanest place, but I tell you what, it is the best taste in food, and I'm not going anywhere else. I'm not spending my money anywhere else. I'm going to go there on a regular basis, and I'm going to dine and feast like a stinking king. That's, That's right. the habitat we want to create. may not be the most gorgeous park-like setting. I, I can tell you it's not going to be the most gorgeous park-like setting, but it's going to be fantastic, and you are not going to want to leave, and you're not going to want to hunt anywhere else. I can no. tell you that much. No, and and even when you do, you're going to be thinking about that place saying, I should have just gone back to the to the what my favorite place, the hole in the wall. Yeah. It's definitely not. It's the place that's got the vines growing up the side of it. Yeah. And uh, 
the both literally and figuratively. <laughs> um, and it's just the junk, the 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 dump that you're like, is that place really is it open? Did, Are there store hours? And then relating is that does does somebody who owns that like are they even around? Because it looks all grown up nasty. But guess what? That's where they're hanging out. That's absolutely where they're at. And and there's another um, study that we're gonna show and, and and talk about in just a second that just relates to that fact that like when you have it they're not leaving they're not going anywhere um so before we get into that i'm going to share another one real quick and it's a little bit longer of a of a read um but it talks about basically what you can gather is the importance of identifying bedrooms core areas and how they're using it when they're using it and and this is a kind of a, a a deer lab um example too like identifying when is the best time to act on these deer. Here we go. Okay, Clint McCoy tracked the fine scale movements of 37 different bucks wearing GPS collars on a 6,400 acre hunting site in South Carolina. Because habitat quality is extremely high on the site, Clint predicted he would find relatively small home range sizes that bucks did not need to move far to find plenty of food, cover, and breeding opportunities. His prediction was accurate. This buck, and I'm looking at a map here now of GPS points um, within this property. This buck didn't travel very far to get from the bean field, about three quarters of a mile, and it's obvious from the solid line of points extending from his primary home range to the bean field that, there was a, that he was a regular customer. At first glance, you may be thinking the same thing when I saw this buck's movement. Put a stand on the southern edge of the bean field? That sounds good in theory, but setting up on this edge of the bean field or even 100 yards south of it would not have yielded a single sighting of this buck. As you can see, when you examine the timing of his movements, there's some times on this map, not one did this buck approach the field before 9 p.m. And even more frustrating, he was always back to the safety of his bedroom before the sun came up the following morning. There was only one option for a hunter to take advantage of this buck's predictable feeding pattern that squeeze as close as possible to the buck's bedding area. Although they never ended up, although we never approached the bean field before dark, he was typically up and moving about 30 minutes before the end of shooting light, providing a small window of opportunity for hunters to tightening their grip on the buck's preferred bedding location. How common is that scenario yeah. right there if we could radio collar all of our deer we would find out that that is true in almost every place we hunt and and that goes for for me i interpret that as woodsmanship again there is sign out there in the woods this deer was traveling three quarters of a mile so he was leaving he was on a trail for at least three quarters of a mile he was foraging heavy there's browse pressure probably in those beans you could see there was probably a scrape limb there was likely rubs leading to and from but the opportunity that that buck allowed a hunter was really only a half hour during the evening time if you were even close enough to his location that's so frustrating for hunters but how many times do we focus our efforts on a field edge no. or, or where a lot of the sign is how many times do we focus on trying to make the very best food in that field mm-hmm. and yet a more defined bedding area would have put us one step closer how, how many resources as in hours and and funds monetary funds do we put into that high quality forage which is important certainly but then our hunting efforts focus specifically over that and we're missing the boat we're missing in a lot of instances and that varies between habitat types across the country certainly but in this instance it's very applicable for a lot of hunters out there not once would that deer have gotten to that field edge before dark and at three quarters of a mile seems like a long ways and uh, you know it's a considerable distance but not that far no, not for a whitetail buck. Right, and, and we're putting time and energy into hunting them there, and we're so far off. And, and likely, you would have put your trail camera right there on the field edge. That's just common. But again, the intel that you're receiving only tells you that he's in the area. 
and it only tells you that he's getting there at dark. You've got to backtrack his movements. And I, I, my question is, okay, if you had provided better structure and cover for him closer to that same quality of cover, I guess, that he's selecting and choosing to be in day in and day out, if you had replicated that closer to the bean field, would he have stopped? Would he have cut the distance down for you? Would he, you would have that have allowed you to have more harvest opportunities? I say, yeah. We don't. We don't know. We don't know what the habitat quality is right here on this site. But there's a good chance that 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 could have happened. It may not be as regular as his other movement, but the point, I guess, is he bedded there in this general vicinity. For a specific reason. Probably a combination of factors. Security, cover, and probably forage opportunities there too. Because he didn't forage that much in the bean field. I mean, yes, it was in the evening, but for a small window time frame. They eat yeah. throughout the whole day. But And as we talked in past podcasts, regardless, browse is still a, a huge part of the diet year-round. Huge. Huge. That's where that goes with the question of almost a would you rather buy a hand spreader or some really nice food plot like like I think of a whirlwind spreader or a mm-hmm. chainsaw, which one's going to have more long term effect? A chainsaw? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I'm only using that whirlwind spreader in an open field, and I got more woods than field, so I need to start getting that chainsaw working, yeah, and making food, making forage. I, to me, and I guess you know, I know you guys can't see what we're talking about here in, in the map. But if you want to know more, and and honestly, we've got another study to talk about. But these aren't. This isn't even half of what's in this module. Like, there's so many more opportunities and instances um, about other patterns and ranges and movements that deer make that we're not covering. Um, this is just what stands out to us um, and what's in that we're seeing is important, that's going to um, impact, hopefully, the ability and the emphasis on you guys going out and doing more habitat work. Um, so, Adam, I, I I know you're in the same boat as me. It's like, oh, my gosh, how many times did, did you now, like, when younger in, in your hunting career, if you will, did you just waste time sitting on a field edge? You're like, you know what, I had, I had pictures of that deer, but really I don't know anything else about him, so I'm going to hunt the field edge so he doesn't get to till. 10 o'clock at night. We still make that mistake But it's sometimes. like, I'm going to do it. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Uh, to me, if you don't have a defined bedding area, if you have a really great food plot, but you don't have a defined bedding area, you really have no idea where the deer are going to come from, what time they're going to get there. But if you were to devote way more time or half your time going up into the woods 250 yards and doing a very heavy TSI treatment, over two acres and say, okay, I know this is a preferred bedding. And, and best case scenario is you do it on one side of the field or one side of the food plot. Then you go to another side to where you can hunt those bedding areas on two different winds. And you find a way to get in between them um, in the mornings and the evenings. And it's just your your chances of success are much greater. For For example... Last year we had the conversation, there, there's a property that, that we hunt, and you'll probably see on some films um, this coming fall, but it is predominantly food sources. It, it, throughout the entire property is food, 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 whether it's clover, whether it's soybeans, whether it's cut corn or planted cover crops. And, and it changes. Um, the palatability of each one of those forages changes throughout the year, and then there's cattle thrown in the mix. So with all these different food sources, it attracts a lot of deer, but the, the food source that they go to changes so drastically, but the bedding areas or the, the best bedding cover is limited on the farm. And I think it was about midway through the season said, why are we focusing so much time on food resources? The limiting factor is bedding cover. And if we want any predictability on on deer patterns and movement, we need to focus on a bedding area, the very few bedding areas on the property. You think of it almost like a wagon wheel, and the center of the wagon wheel is the the core area, the bedding area, and then the spokes of the wagon wheel are trails leading to food sources. And the closer you get to the bedding area, the more 
patternable the deer travel patterns are. Everything the comes further back to it. away you get, the less likely you have a chance at. Now you may see deer, but it may be way. It's going to be distance, way less field. Yeah. So definitely try to court. Try to hone in on that core area. What what that is, and a lot of times that's bedding areas. Yeah. And, and we focus so much on food plots and food sources, and we skip the fact of a bedding area. That's why we spend, Matt and I, when we're talking about laying out farms, we're looking more honestly at the bedding area and how oh, for to. Sure. It's it's not a question of where can we put the food plots. It's where can we put the food plots in correlate in correlation with the bedding areas. Well, and, and let's just think about it from this standpoint. Okay, during daylight hours when you were actively hunting, do deer spend more time in food plots, open fields, or in the timber bedded down? Or in a bedding area? I know which one it is. It's cover. So why, as hunters, do we then put so much time in stands or blinds over food resources? That They can be good. But if that's the majority of your time spent in the stand, you're missing the boat oftentimes. Or, you, or you're not capitalizing on everything you could be. And, and it's, it sounds so far-fetched. You're like, well, I watch outdoor television, and I see big deer getting killed every single year in agricultural fields and food plots. So what do you say to that? I say, yeah, it can happen. That's specific times of the year. I say your highest percentage is focusing on areas of cover. That's what I'm going with. Yeah, I totally, I would totally want to focus more on, and not just like if I have a really great food plot and I'm like, I'm just not seeing the daylight activity that I want. It's probably because they're having to travel too far to get there or you put too much hunting pressure on that food plot to where they don't get there before, uh, before dark anyway. So if you can lay out a food plot that looks great, You've made a great food plot, but then you have laid out a bedding area or multiple bedding areas within range. I say that basically I don't want the deer to travel a long distance to get to the food plot from the bedding area. Uh, if you can do that, you're you're just making it much easier for you to punch tags. I, I'm going to say this, though, too. Which one is the deer more comfortable in? I see some, some skittish deer in food plots and open fields, but very comfortable deer and cover and close to cover the most comfortable deer i've ever watched was sticker eight mm-hmm. that, that i shot yep th- three years ago now coming up coming up um, three years yeah to where it was what do you know chainsaws were used and we cut trees that february we cut the tar out of trees and there was a lot of stuff on the ground there was a lot of stuff growing from that one growing season and that deer when he st- Wherever he came from, my gut tells me he was bedded very close to the stand when we got in there. <laughs> very close. when he was, when Matt saw him, it was a very almost deer moving and slow motion and stretching and scratching. And it was just like, okay, he was close when we got here. And that deer didn't have a care in the world. No. But if we were to watch that same deer moving a food plot, we would have seen a deer very alert, very skittish. And very on edge. No doubt. And that goes right in with how do we make deer more comfortable. And it's always better habitat by improving um, things that, that they are, need. Are limiting. Yeah. And that comes a lot of times with native grass or wildflowers or other forbs and shrubby species. And adding all those to the habitat or to the landscape to where um, deer are just much more comfortable. And you know how I said I wanted to hunt cover? This next quick little study we're going to do a brief synopsis on. This this buck, a three-and-a-half-year-old buck, was um, captured and, and, and uh, had a GPS collar on him in June. And they then began to study him patterns each month. And he was captured or, or you know put a, had a collar put on him on the edge of a 100-acre clear cut that was four years old. So it had really good cover and forage within that 100-acre clear cut. And when he was tagged there in, in June, um, the month of July, you see his pattern, um, and it is dots 
very, very densely located within that clear cut. Same thing with August, same thing with September. And in October, it began to expand beyond, for obvious reasons, um, mating, um, food resources changed some. But as it got beyond the confines of the 100-acre clear cut, the only times that this three-and-a-half-year-old deer was outside of that area during daylight hours four times in the month of October. Four times was that deer, if you didn't hunt the clear cut, the cover would have given the hunter or a hunter an opportunity to harvest him. And obviously a four-year-old clear cut, if you're not familiar with that, is very dense. It is difficult to hunt, but there's different strategies that you can use um, to make it more accessible and, and um, feasible to hunt. But there's an extremely strong correlation between proper forage and proper cover and the way deer begin to move in and around that area and how they sometimes don't move. And, and you might be thinking... Well, why would I want a lot of food and cover in the same place if he's only going to give you an option of four times to kill him? And, and you're very sound on that. I know someone's thinking about it. But it's not at the same density of a 100-acre clear cut. 100 acres is, is a big chunk of ground. And who's to say that a, a food plot, I mean, let's just face it, it's a... High, very high quality food source, and especially if you can correlate it to where um, you have standing grain during the winter months, they're going to come out of that clear cut to get to that standing grain. Now, they can survive all they want in the clear cut, but it's like if I had the option to eat ice cream over Brussels sprouts and lettuce and veggies and meat, I'm going to still want ice cream. I can survive on the other stuff, but I still want that option, and that's just what I think of a food plot is they, they don't necessarily need it if the habitat's correct, but if it's there, they're going to eat it. They're going to eat it, but if, if the safety and security's not there, they're only going to go there when um, it's dark and that's not right. give hunters an opportunity. So when we're laying out properties and we're talking about creating these small bedding covers, we're talking about pockets of dense vegetation with the right structure and, and forage opportunities that you can place throughout your property and put deer during daylight hours in concentrated areas and begin to pattern deer in a much better um, uniform in a honestly a patternable manner it sounds silly but in a manner that you're not just guessing or just wondering okay i get a couple pictures of him here and there no you're gonna know if he's heading this direction he's likely selecting this two acre bedding thicket that you've created and then from there you can make the right hunting choices and stand selections based on that information you know it's not let's go out and just massacre 100 acres and just say yeah i'm gonna have a lot of deer because you will but it's do it in a manner that makes the most sense to hunt it and provide the best quality vegetation cover and security in an area. And I, I don't know, that that's, again, a portion of the studies and information included in this deer home range um, and deer movement patterns, everything QDMA module. So I hope I was encouraged enough to go and get the stinking model because um, there's so much more information on here about bucks. And hopefully, as you guys can see, that it will make you a better hunter, a more um, well-rounded hunter that has and uses woodsmanship skills to make decisions on when to hunt, where to hunt, how to hunt, and when to stay at home. Um, another quick thing, Adam, that, that actually the QDMA, if you don't, if you're not signed on to their to get their newsletter, they send one out. I think it's weekly, um, but they shared something, a, a little article today. Um, that was like, oh, why is that happening? Why, are, why are, as hunters are we not managing in this aspect? It was a little disheartening. Um, so we got this little platform in a few minutes to share um, what it was that, that they talked about, and hopefully change some mindsets and influence some things. Um, for this coming season. So I'm going to read a short little portion of it. 
So there's been an increasing trend over the past few years of hunters in numerous states shooting more antlered bucks than antlerless deer annually. This is expected in places like New England, but not in our productive heartland. In the 2016-17 deer season, over half, six of the 11 states in the southeast, shot more bucks than antlerless deer. This is this should not be happening in deer-rich Louisiana, South Carolina, or Tennessee. Even worse, in the Midwest, 8 of 13 states shot as many or more bucks as antlerless deer. States like Kansas, Kentucky, Michigan, Nebraska, and Wisconsin should be shooting far more antlerless deer than bucks. But it's not that case today. And 16 and 17 hunters in Michigan, Minnesota, and South Dakota shot 3 bucks for every 2 antlerless deer. This has to stop. I'm fully aware that there are areas today with deer herds well below what the habitat can support. But there are numerous places within states urging hunters to shoot more antlerless deer that we're not taking advantage of pulling the trigger. In 2016-17 season, 21 of 37 states, 57% shot more bucks than antlerless deer. How many people honestly know the buck-to-doe ratio within their neighborhood do you, do you would you suspect less than five percent that's that's strong but i w- i'm not i'm gonna say you're not far off at all um and, and we're making management decisions because every time you pull the trigger or you release an area it's a management decision honestly yeah. you're impacting the local deer herd so every time we do that I think that's that's the responsibility aspect that a lot of people or a lot of hunters um, they make mention or talk about or reference, but don't quite honestly understand. And every time again that you pull the trigger, release an arrow, something is happening. You're altering the 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 deer herd, and we're we're making errors in that management on a yearly basis. Across, it's not just one state. It's not just pointing a finger and saying, "Oh, it's you guys," or it's probably not. It's not just bow hunters, not just rifle hunters. It's a collective hunters across the whole country. Well, it is the buck hunters' fault. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Huh. <laughs> I, I don't. I just don't understand why we're in that predicament with all this information that we have out there. You know why? I. I do, and I say I don't. I we, think, we talk about I think this social a lot. media. There's no gets a blame. We know it. There's no honor in shooting a doe. Man, I, 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 I wish I had the number, honestly, of of number of does to bucks I've shot. And this is not a bragging situation in a in a uh, because Which we're talking about this. It sounds like it. It is. doesn't sound like it. Yeah. But seriously, I have whacked does, and I absolutely love it. It's yeah. so much fun. How you? I've I've watched you shoot you a pile know, of those. You, you know I have. Yeah, I mean yeah. It, it is a blast, and it's still a great season if you don't tag a buck. Trust us, <laughs> it's happened. Yeah. We've been there. Some of the best seasons I've ever had. I never shot a buck. Yeah, uh, I enjoy shooting uh, does. I enjoy the fact that, I mean. They're a lot easier to come by, and uh, <laughs> right. they're much easier to fill the freezer up with, with does than it is bucks, and uh, so I certainly enjoy it, and, and to me, I think that's just one of those things that I don't like seeing people go out and focus strictly on a buck and then letting their herd get out of a healthy uh, healthy range because they've decided to not shoot does. Uh, that's definitely something that I don't enjoy. And I think it's definitely something that we need to be talking about. More people need to be talking about, um, and shoot, we need to be inviting more hunters. Let's just face it. We need to have more and more hunters go into the woods. And, uh, that's a great way that they're, they're going to be shooting does long before they shoot bucks, most likely. So get some more people out there and shoot some does, shoot some does, Matt, would you rather, Mm-hmm. shoot this fall would you rather go with a crossbow or mm-hmm. a rifle mm, that's a good question um no there's no like we're going somewhere and it's you don't have the option your your bow is blown up and and there's a there's a there's a crossbow and a gun in, in camp which one are you taking 
Um, <laughs> is it rifle season? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that was a dumb question. You want me yeah. to be illegal? <laughs> ah, if I went there to boat hunt, I'm grabbing the, the crossbow. I I have no problem doing it. I just pref- I love shooting a bow and arrow. I, I love archery. Um, that's that's a lot of fun to me. Um, I would I'd stick with it. If I went there, I'm you know committed. I'm going to be as committed as I can be based on the circumstances. I'll I'll take a crossbow. I've never shot a deer with a crossbow, honestly. I haven't. I, I never I haven't have. even shot a crossbow that much. Really? But I well, I, I guess I haven't it. either. I've I've shot one, but I've never just gone hog heaven and just plunked with one. No, I haven't either. No, me either. Nope. But it, I imagine that's a good question. Yeah. That's a good would you rather? Um, Adam, would you rather? Would you rather? Ooh, this might be a good one. Would you rather be sitting? Hunting, this is peak rut or pre-rut. Would you rather be hunting a bedding area in Maryland during peak rut or would you rather be hunting over a crop field, a cut crop field in Alabama during the rut? Alabama. What? What is wrong with you? (laughs) Did you not just listen to the podcast? Where were you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I figure I'm just going to see nothing but does in Maryland anyway. So. Oh, buddy, you need to go to the right place in Maryland. Yeah. No, I wouldn't have a problem. I said that, I don't know, I just like the, the I was thinking more of the fact of the Alabama hunting heritage and, and uh, I don't know, it really doesn't matter to me that both are... Right. You, I mean, you have a week. You, you're hunting for a week. This is a, this I, is a big decision, Adam. Maryland. I, as much as it hurts me to go east, uh, I'll go. What do you Maryland. have against the east? <laughs> What's the news, man? Oh my gosh! We better end this podcast now. <laughs> uh, yeah, I go to Maryland, hunt the bedding area, see a hundred does for one buck. But I do it. Hey, that you said you'd like to shoot does. Yeah, it's yeah. unlimited in a lot of counties in Maryland. That's right. Let's go to Maryland then. The old Ted, whack them and stack them. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. That's another podcast, habitat-focused podcast. Be sure to check out our hunting-focused podcast coming up soon. On in Sportsman's fact, Nation. We're going to record it right now. Right now. We will catch you guys next week. See ya. Thanks for listening to another episode of Land and Legacy's Hunting and Habitat Management Podcast. If you like what you hear, check us out at landandlegacy.tv. You can submit a viewer question right there and we're answering the podcast. Or find us on Facebook and Instagram. Feels pretty good knowing that from the beginning of time, God has called us to be a caretaker, a gamekeeper, a manager of the land. So with that being said, don't you think we should do it all for the love of the land and the glory to God?